everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Panda Pod, your favorite disability rights podcast. I am Michelle Bishop, NDRN's voter access and engagement manager, and one third of your incredible hosting team. And I'm Stephanie Flint, one of NDRN's public policy analysts. And we have another special guest host this month. Raquel, please shout yourself out to our listeners. Hi, everyone. This is Raquel. I am also at NDRN. I am part of the RepPE team, and I am slowly transitioning over to the external relations team. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Raquel. We're so excited for you to join. So before we get started with the business of this episode, I have some important business to conduct. I have to make good on a promise I made someone. This is our, what, March 2023 episode, and officially the first episode of me calling out my mom every single episode until she starts listening to our podcast. I think y'all have heard me say before that my mom is our only listener. And I just recently found out, despite the fact that I set up a podcast app on her phone, she is not listening to us. So mom, this is your official call out. You better get in touch with me ASAP or I'm calling you out again next month. Okay. So if she doesn't listen to the podcast, she's not going to hear you. You might want to text her. (laughs) I'm going to keep saying it until the word gets back to her. (laughs) (laughs) Or you're just going to have to listen to this every month until the podcast inevitably crashes and burns. You heard it here first. Y'all figure out a way to contact Michelle's mom so that we don't have to listen to this PSA every month. Hey, hey, (laughs) if we're stuck with Stephanie's jokes (laughs) every month, then I can do this. All right. Um, (laughs) Sorry, sorry. Okay, Jack Rose and our trusty producer, who we forget to introduce every single episode, Um, Please take it away. Tell us what's in the news these days. From Youth Today, a state is being sued for warehousing children with disabilities in foster care. Late last year, Disability Rights North Carolina and the North Carolina chapter of the NAACP filed a class action suit against North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services Secretary Cody Kinsley, seeking to end discrimination regarding children with disabilities who are placed in foster care as wards of the state and who are then unnecessarily segregated from their home communities. As a result, these children are often isolated in heavily restrictive and clinically inappropriate institutional placements called psychiatric residential treatment facilities. Through their attorneys, the North Carolina lawsuit alleges the children who stand as named plaintiffs, using pseudonyms of course, are receiving heavy cocktails of mind-altering psychotropic medications while at these facilities. So I feel like I only have one word and it's a question and that is why. I mean, I, I know that the foster care system is a broken system, but this is just this is just heartbreaking. I'm honestly at a loss for words. I, I was just going to say, I, this is so gut-wrenching. I mean, the trauma upon trauma that these young people are faced with. And there is a general perception, I think, that um, the child welfare system is uh, benevolent and that these young people are in good hands. And unfortunately, Unfortunately, that is incredibly the most part of the furthest thing from the truth. Um, a lot of these young people are also uh, receiving Social Security benefits. 
And those benefits are unfortunately not always used in their best interest. Um, and they're not always being conserved for when they transition into independent adult life. So um, it's just, it's it's bad every way you slice it. Yeah, I'm not sure what else to say about this one. It's truly terrifying, but it makes me thankful for organizations like the PNAs and our network that are doing incredible work to try to stop things like this from happening to people with disabilities. So shout out to all of you who are out there protecting people with disabilities every day. Um, I appreciate you so much. What else do we have in the news, Jack? From the State Journal in West Virginia, home care services shortages and issues place West Virginians at risk. Advocates for the elderly and people with disabilities in West Virginia are calling for more investment and oversight in home care as workforce shortages and other issues within the industry bring consequences ranging from mere inconvenience to unnecessary institutionalization and even death. These services can help individuals live independently in their own homes, be involved in their communities, and avoid institutionalization in psychiatric facilities or nursing homes. They also provide a cost savings. It costs about 200 50 to $300 per day to keep an individual in their home compared to about $900 a day for that individual to live in an institution. Susan Given, the executive director of Disability Rights West Virginia, had this to say, we're trying to get people to understand that this is serious. People think this doesn't affect them, but their parents may be one day away from having a stroke or heart attack that would be debilitating or a car accident with a child. It's just something that everyone should be concerned about because because you never know when you're going to be in that situation. No one is insulated from something like this happening to them or a family member. Well, Disability Rights of West Virginia, first of all, are fearless. So shout out to them for the advocacy they're doing here. Do we know y'all, and I'm kind of looking at you, Raquel, because I feel like you would know about things like this. Is this like a COVID-related thing? Are there worker shortages in this industry following the pandemic? Well, first, I also want to piggyback on the big shout out to Disability Rights West Virginia because they are phenomenal. So they, I am just so pleased with them uh, being so bold in pushing for people to be at home and thrive in their own personal space. Yeah. So to answer your question, Michelle, this has been a pre-existing issue. COVID has made it worse. So when it comes to direct supports, and by the way, everyone, I spent the first decade plus of my career providing direct supports. So it's um, something very near and dear to me. There's more than one issue. One of them is that it's not a well-valued career. People, unfortunately, associate this work with intimate care that is just not considered appealing. It's not paid well. People are not trained well. Oftentimes, service providers do not offer any kind of uh, professional development or incentives to grow. For some of the people, myself included, who moved beyond that, um, it's really up to us to make those steps into another into another direction to to deepen our advocacy, to deepen our expertise. Otherwise, it's it's just a, unfortunately a, a cycle of not great recruitment strategies, no good retention strategies, and unfortunately just the devaluing of people with disabilities. Um, COVID has obviously made it worse. And part of it is people's fear of just being in uh, spaces with people who are that much more vulnerable 
to COVID. Um, some people are saying, hey, look, you know, this has made me re reassess what's important to me and I want to do something more. Um, people are are taking the, the proverbial bull by the horns and getting that education on their own. They are attempting other uh, career moves that that can help people. So I, I think I think it's a really big issue. I think we need to get a lot of policymakers on board with enhancing budgets and really trying to incentivize this workforce because everybody deserves the right to be at home, live at home, thrive at home, and to also go to, you know, the policymaking angle. Having a cost benefit analysis is just chef's kiss because people ultimately want to see how is this beneficial when it comes to dollars and cents. And um, when you're talking about a $700 difference between at-home support and institutional support, it's astounding. So not only is the quality of life for someone that much better when they're at home, uh, the cost benefit is it's undeniable. So yeah, um, I I think it's a really big issue for us to tackle. And I, I it's something near to me and I am happy to be part of the charge. Well, y'all see why we had Raquel on today. Yes. <laughs> I hear you snapping those fingers. Yes. <laughs> uh, Jack, any other news stories for us this month? From a local NBC affiliate in Texas, KXAN, Texas bill would ban schools from restraining students on the ground. Texas Representative Mary Gonzalez of El Paso this session introduced a bill that would ban teachers and other school employees from restraining students on the ground at school, specifically those with disabilities. Tragically, those restraints are happening more and more violently to students with disabilities, Disability Rights Texas Senior Policy Specialist Steve Ailman said. And Rep. Gonzalez added, I just think about how our schools exist or do exist for our most vulnerable kids to get the support they need. And when I see this video, it just gives me some red flags. And that is why we're doing this piece of legislation with Disability Rights Texas, Rep. Gonzalez added. Uh, the video in question was a school administrator throwing a 14-year-old boy into a, the wall of a quote-unquote cool-down room and then restraining him on the ground. So uh, glad to see that Disability Rights Texas is working with the legislature to make some progress on um, banning this practice. The fact that this is still happening in 2023 is just plain wrong. The fact that this is considered some sort of discipline is quite frankly disgusting. And I mean, like Steve was saying, this is something that is happening everywhere. This is something that is happening all over the country. And this is something that doesn't really get talked about. Yeah, I don't understand uh, why anyone's getting restrained against the ground specifically, especially when we're talking about a 14-year-old that's a child. Uh, I do love all the shout outs to our amazing network today, Disability Rights Texas as well, just do incredible work. So thank you, Disability Rights Texas, for, for leading the charge on this one. Yeah, I, I could not agree with you all more. Just the egregious nature of presuming that's okay. I mean, that's child abuse. It's, it is absolutely child abuse. Like as adults, 
we collectively, like we need to check ourselves. We're talking about young people who are developmentally different than us. Um, They are generationally different than us. The world is different for them than it is for us in a lot of ways. And then you add disability into the mix and we're just going to wrangle kids and, and put them on the ground. I mean, that's just, it is nothing short of violence and abuse and people should be ashamed of themselves. Raquel, can you say that louder for the people in the back? The whole thing? The whole thing for the people in the back. (laughs) We need to do better. We need to do better. We need to hold one another more accountable. And, you know, if if people really have that much aggression, um, they can take boxing lessons, do that with people who consent to physical uh, uh, encounters. Don't be bringing kids down. It's not cool. I sense Raquel becoming a co-host. Um, <laughs> actually, on that note, let's get into the main issue for today's episode. We found out about this really cool program happening in Massachusetts called Operation House Call. And we got some folks involved with that project on today to talk about it. Raquel, can you introduce our speakers for us? Absolutely. So first, we've got Maura Sullivan. She is a dedicated and passionate leader in advocacy for people with autism and intellectual and developmental disabilities. Her expertise is in disability health policy and education. Currently, she's the Director of Government Affairs for the ARC of Massachusetts, and she's the Director and Lead Instructor for Operation House Call, the program that teaches medical students best practices in caring for individuals with autism and intellectual and developmental disabilities. She teaches at all the major medical schools in Massachusetts which reaches over 1,000 medical and nursing students every year. Her life's focus for this work comes from being a mom of two young men with autism and intellectual disabilities. Then we've got Jonathan Gardner. He is a 20-year-old self-advocate, cancer survivor, and decision maker who also happens to have autism. He has a vision of helping others any way he can. Jonathan is currently employed by the ARC of Massachusetts as an ambassador for Operation House Call. He is a council member of the Massachusetts DD Council, and he is a Flutie Fellow for the Doug Flutie Jr. Foundation, where he gets to share his vision of helping other people. Most recently, he was named co-chair to the Massachusetts Supported Decision-Making Coalition. In his spare time, he enjoys video games, anime, wrestling, and advocating for himself and other people. Thank you all so much for joining us today. I was wondering if we could just get started with Maura. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about Operation House Call and how this program got started. Absolutely. Thank you so much for for having me. Operation House Call is a really unique program. Uh, It teaches medical students and other healthcare professionals really how to provide the best care to patients with autism or intellectual and developmental disabilities. But we do this um, from the patient and parent's perspective. And it's, it's true experiential learning combined with lecture that provides foundational learning and education, but they really learn through our stories. So our stories highlight important learning objectives. They highlight those pivotal moments we've experienced with medical providers throughout our journeys. Um, The real goal of the program is to really begin to address the health disparities and the access issues that face our community. Um, This is why the ARC of Massachusetts has uh, prioritized this program. Um, We have so much we want to teach and share with uh, future doctors and future healthcare professionals. It has been a slow-growing program, but it's 
now been about 10 years here in Massachusetts with the Ark of Massachusetts. And we are currently in every medical school and in um, a few nursing, graduate nursing schools as well. So we're so excited um, to have this presence. And it's not easy to get time in medical school curriculum. Uh, so it's taken a lot to sort of prove the importance of the program and um, to really build out our program, which is based on families participating. So in Massachusetts, we have 250 families across the state who participate by opening their doors and their homes to medical students and really just giving those students an opportunity to learn what life is like living with a disability. They learn directly from individuals and family members about the the challenges um, that they've had in the medical community, the some of the extraordinary things they've been through. And they also learn just, you know, day-to-day -day life and the um the usual challenges they have for education and out in the community. We feel like families do such a wonderful job showing medical students their resilience and their strength in the face of some some very complex medical conditions and, and those combined with intellectual or developmental disabilities um, can really be really challenging and complex for families. So we're very excited. We see students coming away from this program um, just enlightened. They have incredible amounts of respect for the families and for the individuals, and they really have a willingness to learn more. And I think that's that's what's great. It kind of breaks any of the fear they may have had about treating patients with autism or IDD, and they just grow confidence. And, and, you know, that's one of the main goals is we want more providers willing to treat patients, especially when we get to adulthood. We see that it's really difficult to find primary care, to find specialty care, and to have doctors um, who you may encounter in the emergency room or as covering doctors really understand um, the needs of patients with autism and IDD and their families. So some of the things that I think are so important about our program um, are, are the learning objectives that we cover. And we do that, again, through our personal stories, but we talk so much about communication and the importance of communication, whether it's learning to communicate with someone who's non-speaking and uses you know, gestures and sounds and play as part of their uh, communication um, or really partnering with family members all the way to, you know, learning how to um, give patients enough processing time when they ask questions so they can really be engaged and participate in their own health care. Uh, one of the great parts of the program is during our lectures in the medical schools, we bring in an individual who has autism or an IDD, intellectual developmental disability, and they serve as a co-teacher. And uh, you'll hear from Jonathan later about this, but they share their experiences directly with the medical students and then open up class to a question and answer session that um, is always incredibly moving and impactful 
as they learn more about this individual and their journey and their needs. And then lastly, I would say they they come away from class with a lot of resources. They have um, tips that we've put together about accommodations. And these tips come in from our 250 families. Um, and this, the students write about their experience, which is also a whole nother um, aspect of learning is just reflecting and beginning to think about their own biases that may affect treatment and assessment of patients. And through that essay, they process with a parent instructor. So a parent instructor will then provide feedback and answer any questions and allow those students um, to explore additional resources. So uh, I feel like it's a it's a great model. Um, it's really remarkable how the students are transformed from meeting families and individuals. And um, we're very lucky to have the support of so many families and the support of the ARC of Massachusetts. So Jonathan, I have a, qu- a couple of questions for you. Uh, the first part is, what has it meant to you to participate in this program? Uh, I feel very honored and validated to be an ambassador for Operation House Call. My vision has always been to help uh, others in any way I can. And this is a fulfilling my vision in so many ways. I get to share my story and help others share theirs. Altogether, we can make such an impactful, positive change in the way everyone should receive their health care. Operation House Call gives me a chance to uh, teach up incoming doctors and nurses from my own experiences, which were some good and some bad, so that the bad experiences that I went through won't happen to others. Sharing my story gives me a chance to help the students understand how to communicate with someone who happens to have a disability and to look past that disability so that everyone is able to get the best possible care. I believe uh, that all behaviors is a form of someone trying to communicate. The students uh, get the chance to ask questions when I teach. And this is a way for us to work together to make sure everyone is able to get the best possible care possible. The students want to learn how to treat everyone equally. And this gives us all a chance to work together to make sure everyone is able to get the best possible care. Operation House Call has helped me with my own advocacy because I've always been shy. I have, I was traumatized at a very young age. It has helped me become the version of myself that I knew I could always be. I have always wanted to help others to the best of my abilities, and now I get to do just that. I am now a strong advocate, not just for myself, but for others. My voice is validated and respected when it used to not be. This is so empowering to me. I can make others feel more comfortable doing their own co-teaching and teaching and taking care of their patients. This all fits with my vision of helping others any way I can. As an ambassador, I get to help mentor the co-teachers and provide strategies to cope through the classes. And there is no better way to learn than from someone with a personal story. Operation Health Call is all about families and individuals with disabilities teaching uh, doctors. They are getting a very personal education from the heart when they come to our classes. To me, 
nothing more is meaningful. Thank you. Um, so you actually answered what I was going to ask earlier, but I, I came up with something kind of bridging the two together, which is how has Operation House Call given you techniques to advocate for yourself? And what advice would you have for other people with disabilities and how they can advocate for themselves? That's a very interesting question. I would say uh, for how it helped me become uh, more of an advocate, I guess the supports and the uh, and the knowledge of the people that are around me. Like, for example, uh, my mom, who is one of my main teachers and one of my main mentors, uh, she is wonderful and she's taught me so much about this advocacy world that I can never be uh, so grateful in my entire life. And then there's Maura, uh, who uh, you just heard from a little bit ago, uh, who is one of um, my mom's mentors. And I'm glad to say uh, she's one of mine as well, because honestly, she's done a great job in supporting me and others through this uh, wonderful program. But for others, my uh, I guess my suggestions would be to don't feel like you can't rely on supports to help you uh with uh, advocating. I guess my uh, suggestion is uh, don't feel afraid to ask for supports and do what makes you feel comfortable in the moment. I was wondering, in light of the success of Operation House Call, how can PNAs and disability organizations get something like this going in other states? Like I mentioned, it's really been a, a slow growth for Operation House Call here in Massachusetts. But I think the good news is that there's really a national um, recognition of the health equity issues for people with IDD and autism right now. So I believe more and more states are going to want their medical students and their doctors um, and, and other healthcare professionals better trained and better equipped. So I think there's definitely a movement um, to, to have more trainings available, more continuing ed, more trainings for emergency rooms. But for us, the best way we built out our program was um, to connect with a champion at that medical school or at our local hospital or even the local clinics that have more expertise in autism or IDD, like our Down syndrome clinics here at Mass General Hospital. Um, and, we, and we found those doctors who are established um, champions in the field and in the community. And they were able to help us kind of get a foot in the door at the medical schools. Um, offering a pilot program was really helpful. Uh, we were able to do the program with a small number of students and then get their feedback. And we have a great story of um, recently, one of our medical students at UMass Medical School, she really wanted this program um, and she advocated it at for it herself, actually bringing it to her administration, saying um, she had Googled and found out that like that medical schools don't have training programs in in autism or IDD, and that she she actually had found Operation House Call and was shocked to see that you know her medical school was the only one in Massachusetts that hadn't implemented it yet. And, you know, they really listened to her and they allowed us to do a pilot and um, and they brought us right on board. So it was it was wonderful. Uh, other programs have been longstanding. And each year we make sure that we're constantly getting student feedback. 
Because the reality is they don't have a lot of time in their curriculum. And we really do need to prove um, how important this is for medical students. So we rely on the students' feedback and they tell us what an incredible experience and what an important and impactful one it's been during their um, medical school rotation or clerkships. And what's nice is we can always also use their reflection essays um, internally here to show, uh, you know, really the power that these families are having to, to educate and to inspire these doctors. I, I would also say that, um, you know, there's been some studies and some research done on sort of the attitudes of doctors when it comes to treating patients with disabilities. And I think the more um, research and studies that are done to show that not, not, you know, not all doctors are willing to treat patients with disabilities and some will go to a pretty um, extreme lengths to not treat patients with disabilities. So we really need to break through where we can with that. We, our program is really focused on those attitudinal barriers, but there's much more to do. We need to focus, you know, nationally on better reimbursement for these providers um, because they really do need to have longer appointments sometimes, not all the time, but it's helpful. And we talk about communication and processing and building bonds with their patients and, you know, establishing that level of trust and comfort. And sometimes those things take a little bit longer. So we'd love to see, um, you know, some, uh, there is some federal legislation that would help in this way, but we, we would love to see more efforts put into reimbursement, as well as mandating training across all medical schools. Maura and everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such a fascinating conversation. And I know that a lot of our listeners understand exactly what you're talking about in terms of medical professionals who aren't willing to serve people with disabilities, or if they do, they don't know how to respectfully interact with people with disabilities, or they don't listen to us when we tell them what our symptoms are and what our concerns are. I know that this is a widespread problem and a program like this would probably benefit people with disabilities everywhere. So we appreciate you so much coming on and just telling us more about this. Any resources you have for us, we'd love to put in the show notes so that our organizations and other states can maybe uh, pick up the torch and try to get something like this going in their states as well. But thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, we, we can absolutely share our resources. And um, I would only add to that one of the great things that families are able to share is their positive and um, wonderful experiences they have with their doctors. And this goes a long way too. You know, we talk about the doctors who have really worked at bonding, who have made all the accommodations possible for our loved ones, and the ones that think outside the box and go that extra mile and how important modeling that kind of um, person-first behavior um, and how far that can go. Because if one doctor is a champion and, and they can, um, you know, reach other doctors and healthcare professionals, we'll see a, a, a great effect. So yeah, it's all, it's about, um, you know, kind of making doctors aware of the problems that are out there and the disparities. And honestly, um, you know, really also staying current with the issues and making sure um, that we hit on things like intersectionality and the, the intersection of race 
and disability and and the disparities that come from that as well. And even COVID taught us so much. So we're doing our best to to stay on top of all the issues and reach as many doctors and, and nurses as we can. Thank you all so much for your hard work and your advocacy. And thanks for joining today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Okay, awesome. So that was a super exciting interview with, um, you know, hearing about the instructional aspect of Operation House Call, as well as the self-advocate aspect. You know, one of the things that we really want to give you is just a full a very well-rounded perspective on on Operation House Call. And so we do have a medical student who actually was sharing with me earlier that she participated in in a pilot program prior to Operation House Call um, becoming, I guess you could say, um, becoming more of a normal elective. Um, Can't think of the right words this morning because coffee is a thing and it hasn't totally kicked in yet. But all that to say, you know, super excited to hear her story. My name is Naz. Um, I am currently a third year student at UMass Chan Medical School. And as you said, I participated in a pilot program of Operation House Call um, in a more optional opt-in format and then helped bring um, Operation House Call into the core curriculum at UMass so that all students are able to participate in it. I grew up with an older cousin with an intellectual and developmental disability, and he was definitely a guiding force um, in my reasons for going into medicine. And though I've changed my mind a million times um, about what I might want to go into, I've stayed true to kind of that driving reason for pursuing medicine in the first place. So I knew my first year that I wanted to find some way to still be an advocate um, in medical school. And as you said, a lot of providers and um, people in the medical field don't necessarily mean to overlook that patient population, but um, medical curriculums are often incredibly standardized and it's hard to incorporate new educational material into them. Um, So I thought I would start on a small basis and UMass gives us the opportunity to lead student-driven electives. Um, And so I have a particular interest in pediatrics. So I initially led um, an elective on caring for pediatric patients with um, disabilities and complex medical needs. And I did a little bit of research and discovered Operation House Call, which, um, as you heard previously in this episode, it's basically uh, part core curriculum, part uh, interactions with an individual and their family members um, with Uh, some sort of disability. And I think that I can speak for most medical students when I say that the best way to learn how to care for patients with kind of like complex needs is just to hear their stories, um, hear what day-to-day life is like for them, um, hear what obstacles they face, and hear about both difficulties and successes in the medical field. Um, And that's exactly what Operation House Call does. So um, I participated in the pilot program through that elective, but now every first year has um, this Operation House Call program integrated into their first year curriculum. And it starts with Maura coming in and giving some tips and tricks on how to interact with patients that might have sensory issues or um, what, you know, any sort of challenges or obstacles that um, some of these patients may face in medical settings. Um, And so she shares her story um, and shares some perspective she has from being a part of the Arc of Massachusetts for so many years. 
And then um, students get the chance to break up into smaller groups and meet with individuals with disabilities and their families and just, again, hear their stories, ask questions in a kind of small group setting. Um, a lot of times it can be difficult when you're given like a sort of standard curriculum in a 300 person class and you don't want to embarrass yourself or kind of expose yourself for not knowing much about um, this patient population in such a large setting. So I really do think that breaking breaking these conversations down into groups of like five or six um, gives medical students the chance to ask like any sort of questions that are on their mind. And I found that through talking with more and through participating in the program, like families can be more honest. Um, and some some medical students have never had the chance to really interact with anyone with any sort of disability. So uh, kind of just breaks the ice and I think allows medical students to feel more comfortable going forward. There are so many um, individuals in the United States that have disabilities that are either obvious or not so obvious. And so just breaking the ice and giving medical students that initial interaction so that when these patients circle through their practices, they feel at least a little more comfortable. Um, um, accepting these patients and being willing to see them, I think is the ultimate goal of Operation House Call. And um, I'm glad that more and more physicians uh, that are trained at UMass will be will feel comfortable with these interactions and feel comfortable accepting new patients regardless of the disabilities they face. I think the home visit is the most valuable part. And I think a major part of that stems from the fact that you're not only discussing the fam the a patient's, you know, medical conditions, you're really discussing what day-to-day -day life looks like for them, um, the sort of social challenges they face. Um, and I think that's the most important part to keep in mind um, when interacting with um, these patients. Um, understanding that it goes beyond just like a medical condition or diagnosis. It really does impact day-to-day -day life and getting to learn a bit more about what day-to-day -day life looks like for them does ultimately impact um, the care that medical providers should be providing. And so I think that's both like the best and honestly the most tricky part because yeah, as a physician or a healthcare provider, you really, your responsibility is to, you know, aid patients with their medical conditions or medical uh, problems they're facing. Um, but a lot of times with these patients, there's a lot of social issues that come up too, whether that be navigating resources that they should be, that should be provided to them via the government, um, advocating for them um, in job settings or school settings, depending on their pa the patient's age. Um, securing transportation to and from doctor's appointments. There's a million social things that go into caring for this patient population. And so, I mean, a healthcare provider's job goes beyond just that uh, basic medical care. It kind of, you know, broadens into just caring for this individual as a whole and kind of helping to alleviate the day-to-day -day stressors they face um, as best we can. So um, I think that's a major challenge. And, you know, it's not quite clear uh, what the best solution for that is. I definitely think that some specialties um, have a little bit more time to navigate those kind of social complexities and to 
make more change in just the day-to-day life of their patients. But yeah, I think it's at least a good thing to get physicians to start thinking about and brainstorming ways that they can really impact day-to-day life of these patients and make them easier. Yes, Nas, speak that truth. I think I can speak for all of our co-hosts when I say we love an OG. We love (laughs) a trendsetter. So thank you for being an early adopter of the curriculum through Operation House Call. Uh, I think it's such a cool program. It's going to make such an impact on the medical profession and for people with disabilities. I'm just going to say it like more doctors like Nas. That's what we want to see. Also, more self-advocates like Jonathan while we're on the topic, right? So thank you, Nas, for sharing your story. And thank you to all of our amazing guests today. And I hope all of our listeners are going to go forth and create something like this in their state. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. And thank you guys for sharing our story. I really do hope that more and more medical schools start to incorporate this into their curriculum. Oh my gosh, quite the episode today. People were shouted out. People were called out. Our guests today, we're spitting that truth. Raquel was on fire. So uh, podcast at neuron.org if you want to see Raquel host with us again. But now comes the time in every episode that we all fear. Stephanie, do you have a joke? Of course I do. Although you did have a really nice pun there, Michelle. I'll let people figure that one out for themselves. But here's, okay, so here's the joke for this episode. What do you call a dog that knows everything? Any guesses? Mm, I got nothing. Elabra Google. Oh. <laughs> By the way, my partner says that I should have given her credit for the last joke. So I'm giving her credit for this joke. Oh, that one in last month's joke was better. Oh, it all makes sense now. <laughs> wow. Michelle just said that she liked my jokes. You heard it here, y'all. You heard it here. I think I said I liked your partner's joke, but... Rewind, rewind, rewind. <laughs> <laughs> and enough. that concludes the joke of the month. You can always hit us up at podcast at ndrn.org. If you have topics you'd like us to create an episode around, you have a spotlight story you want to share, you have a joke for Stephanie, or you want to vote to get rid of the joke of the month. All of those are acceptable. You can always email us if you don't like the jokes. Fake news. (laughs) Uh, Jack, how can they follow us on social media? Uh, You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. We're NDRN advocates on most of them. Yeah, follow us. I think that's a wrap, y'all. Who's got final words of wisdom before Jack puts the outro music on us? (laughs) 